A few years ago, in 2009, uh, my family and I went on holiday uh, to Snowdonia in North Wales. And uh, we loved it there. I specifically enjoy walking, and there were some great walks around, uh, the, around Snowdonia. But I don't know how many of you know that about 100 or so years ago, in the years 1904 to 1905, there was a great revival in Wales, with over 100,000 people turning to the Lord. Yet when we were there on holiday, you would never know, a hundred or so years later, that such an event ever happened. True, we did see a great many churches, but most of them were either boarded up or made into houses. We struggled to find an evangelical church in the place that we were. That's not to say, of course, they don't exist in Wales, that's not true at all, but you don't know, you wouldn't know that there was a revival such as there was a hundred or so years ago. Now, a question for you of your Bible knowledge. What is the biggest revival in the whole of Scripture? Does anyone know what the answer is, other than Paula, because I tell her my messages before I do them? (laughs) Does anyone know? Nineveh, that's right, yeah. Lots of people say uh, Pentecost, but that's not true. The biggest revival in Scripture was in the book of Jonah. In chapter 4 and verse 11, we read that over 120,000 people were in that city. And we don't know exactly if that, exactly that many number uh, turned, to, turned to the Lord, but we do know that around that number were saved. You see, just like in Wales, though, it didn't take long for the whole thing to, as if it never, to be as if it never happened. The similarities between the Welsh revival and Nineveh uh, were quite, uh, are quite striking. Around 100 years later, after the revival at Nineveh, the whole thing had fallen apart. You would never know that such a thing had taken place. Around the same number of people in Wales and Nineveh were converted. And in very, uh, it's such a sad state of affairs, isn't it, to read history of such a great revival and yet to see uh, such poor, uh, poor following of the Lord Jesus uh, in these days. But Jonah ends with a question from God. Should I not be concerned about that great city? That's how the book of Jonah ends. And this book of Nahum is the answer. This book of Nahum is the sequel, if you like, to the book of Jonah. And God was concerned enough to send Jonah to that city and to see them converted, even though they were a wicked city, full of sin, full of awful uh, things. If you go to the British Museum, you can see uh, historical exhibits about the Syrian Empire, and all the exhibits are full of uh, death and destruction and the awful things they did to their enemies. But in his grace, God sent this man, Jonah, to this awful place. And the effect of Jonah's preaching was initially great, but the impact was only temporary. The Reformation, partial and superficial. But God showed his grace even more in allowing them to continue in their faith as a nation, despite them turning away from him. They continued for so long, but God gave them ample opportunity to turn to him before they were destroyed, which is what happens at the end of Nahum. And the first verse of this book gives us the purpose of the book, if you like, the oracle concerning Nineveh. 
Or in uh, the New King James, it says, uh, the burden against Nineveh. Nahum was a prophet, and he had a burden, a burden against Nineveh. And this was God's response to a nation that had been given grace, in that the gospel was given to them, and yet they turned their backs on him. A little bit like our nation today, isn't it? And the man delivering the message is called Nahum. His name is Consolation. It's a shortened version of Nehemiah. And his name means to comfort. And it seems strange for a book, as we read it, to be so full of, of uh, destruction and death and, and all these things to be spoken of by a man whose name means comfort and consolation. But of course, this isn't consolation to the people of Nineveh. This is, of course, consolation to the people of God, isn't it? We can get discouraged sometimes and believe that the world is winning. But we can take sweet consolation from the fact that God is in control of all things. He reigns forever and he is sovereign over everything. And in the end, God will have the victory. The only reason that we're, in the, way, that we're the way we are now is because of his grace in allowing everybody through his people to hear of Jesus Christ. And a final bit of background, Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And the empire was at its strongest during the reign of a king called Ashurbanipal. And this is when Nahum was written, when the, when the empire of Assyria was at its most strong. And whilst Judah was under its most brutal control and power. Israel, under the Assyrian captivity, were treated more brutally than at any time in their history. And it was the Assyrians that carried the northern kingdom off and destroyed them. But in God's grace, Judah was spared, but was under the kosh of Assyria. And Nahum, the consoler, could not have prophesied the destruction of Assyria when more comfort was needed for God's people. Well, Ashurbanipal died in 626 BC, and it took just 14 years for this empire to collapse under the Babylonians. Nahum's prophecy was fulfilled completely within 50 years of it being spoken. And in this first chapter, we see what kind of a god Nineveh was rejecting. And as we come to this passage this evening, I want us to look at the god that we worship, the god that we know. And maybe if you're here tonight and you don't believe in him, the god that you are rejecting And there are two elements to focus on in chapter 1, which bring us as his people much consolation. That God is a God of power, and God is a God of justice. First of all, we see that God's power is shown in verses 1 to 6. This book is actually a poem, by the way, and you'll notice the language is a lot like the Psalms. And in verses 2 to 8, it's written in an alphabetic acrostic in the Hebrew. Now, an acrostic, for those that don't know, is where the first word of each line begins with the succeeding letter of the alphabet. So, for example, it's used for for, for memorization. So, for example, we often describe grace as God's riches at Christ's expense. That's an acrostic to help us remember what grace means. And in the Hebrew, that's how this was written. It was written as a poem to help people remember, specifically the people of Nineveh, that they would remember what Nehemiah said. God did not want Nineveh to forget about his power. 
And his power is described brutally in these verses, with Nahum saying that God is going to use all of it to destroy them. And his power is shown in two ways, his character and his creation. Look at verses 2 to 3, and we'll see God's character here. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and maintains his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. God is described as jealous. Jealousy is often rightly described as a sin, isn't it? But godly jealousy is different. It's jealousy where he defends his honor, where he loves his people. He doesn't want them to go off with other gods because it's, it's, it's an awful thing for them to be doing. A jealousy where he punishes oppressors. In a similar kind of way, it can be like a, a, a husband's good jealousy for his wife. For my wife, I don't want Paula to be with other men as she is with me. I'm jealous for that relationship between us to be just between us. I want us to guard our intimacy as a married couple. I want to defend her honor and protect her from any oppressors. That's the kind of jealousy God has for us. He doesn't want us going off with other gods, doing things which are bad for us. He's a jealous God. But he's also, it says here, an avenging God and filled with wrath. This isn't a feature of God that's often talked about today, is it? It's unfashionable today, even among Christians, to talk about God as avenging and full of wrath. But this vengeance, it says, is on his foes. In the middle of verse 2. You see, God is so holy. God is so opposite to sin that he's filled with wrath against sin and sinners who will not respond to his grace. He's so opposed to it, he's so against what he is, that he wouldn't be holy if he didn't hate it, if he didn't have wrath against it. But he gives us his grace so that we don't have to face his wrath. But for those that reject that grace, God is an avenging God and he's filled with wrath. But in verse 3, look at the grace here. But he, the Lord is slow to anger. He could have wiped Nineveh off the face of the earth during Jonah's time. But he sent Jonah to preach to them. He could have wiped them off the face of the earth before Nahum come. Yet he gives them a warning. God is slow to anger. And this isn't weakness, by the way, on God's part. But, it, but strength, that he withholds his anger... And punishes when he wills. He doesn't lash out. And hasn't he been slow to anger with us too? He could have left us in our sin. But by his grace has given us time to respond to Jesus. God is slow to anger and we must thank him for that. And God is described as great in power. And we, we see that in a moment as we look at his power in creation And we see this all through the scriptures, don't we? From the first verse to the last, that we worship a God who is great in power. He is a powerful God. But God is described in his character as just at the middle of verse 3. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. (coughs) Sin will be dealt with. And it's a great consolation to know that the sin that is causing so much misery in this world will be ended. And those who oppose God 
will be punished. And for believers, he fulfilled this promise by not letting the guilty go unpunished, but making Jesus guilty on our behalf. And he gave us his righteousness. The guilty do not go unpunished, but for us, God is just by giving that guilt to Jesus. God is a powerful God. His character is powerful. But as Nahum goes on, we see this character in creation. Look at the end of verse 3. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm. The clouds are the dust of his feet. He's powerful, more powerful than the air or the storms. We see the destruction, don't we, and the power caused by winds such as hurricanes and tornado. God has his way in them. Like they are destructive and powerful, so is God in his vengeance. Look at verse 4. He rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes the rivers run dry. Well, perhaps Nahum was thinking about the Red Sea or the River Jordan being dried up here. God is so powerful that he rebukes the sea and makes the rivers dry up. Do you remember how amazed the disciples were when Jesus did this very thing? When he had power over the wind and the sea. In Mark chapter 4, verse 39, we read this about Jesus. He got up rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. The wind died down and it was completely calm. Well, how did the disciples react to this? They were terrified and asked one another, who is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Only God has this power over the wind and the sea. And this is why the disciples were so terrified. They were realizing that they were not just in the presence of some ordinary man. They were in the presence of God himself. As well as the air and the sea, God has power over the earth. Look at verses 4 to 6. Bashan and Carmel wither and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Carmel and uh, Bashan and Lebanon were remarkable places for their fertility, especially vines and flowers. And for these people, it would be almost unimaginable to think of them withering. And they are used here to show how God can make even the most luxurious places wither away. And mountains quake before him too. Hills melt away, these uh, these things of permanence that don't move. But in God's presence, they quake and they move. Like on Mount Sinai, when, when God was with Moses... The mountain shook, didn't it? And the earth trembles before his presence, the world and all who live in it. It may not seem like it now, but only because he is slow to anger. But God will pour his wrath out this way against all nations like he did against Nineveh. Listen to these words from Revelation chapter 6, verses 15 to 17. The kings of the earth the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, slave and free, hid in caves among the rocks and mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? This is like what Nahum says at the end of verse 6. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. 
His wrath poured out here like fire is perhaps a reference to Sodom and Gomorrah, where fire and brimstone poured out on that wicked city. And this is what happens to those who reject God. I read an article in the paper uh, not that long ago. When I was staying at my hotel with work, they used to give me free papers all the time. And I think I've shown this to some of you. Uh, But there was this article about Superman that I read. And I'll read you some of this article of what it says. With its promise of action and romance, not to mention a stellar cast led by the British actor Henry Cavill and a slick marketing campaign, the new Superman film was always expected to be a box office hit. But the record-breaking takings for Man of Steel can be attributed in part to America's megachurches, which encourage congregations to see the film by likening the superhero to Jesus. Warner Brothers Studios employed uh, this public relations uh, firm focused on Christian markets to arrange screenings for pastors, supply churches with free film clips, and even draft sermons that draw on the themes in the film that can be given a Christian interpretation. There can be parallels drawn between the Superman story of the Bible, a celestial father figure who sends a son with superpowers to earth, a reluctance of the son to assume his role as saviour, and the earthly powers who fear and reject the messianic figure. You know, this is what some people think Jesus is like. There's nothing wrong, of course, with using Superman in some illustration, but you don't start your sermon with Superman. And when I showed this to my son Jacob, he said... Jesus, like Superman, Jesus is way better than that. And it's true. We sometimes think of Jesus as some kind of superhero, but this God is so much greater, so much more powerful than than some man in a suit that wears his pants over his trousers. This is God. He has power over the wind and the waves. He speaks, and these things even exist. A couple of weeks ago, we heard... Uh, that, the, that, that, that God sustains the world by the word of his power. The only reason things even are held together is because of the word of God. He is powerful God. And we sell ourselves short when we think of him as anything else. Our God is the God of the whirlwind and the storm. He is the God who rebukes the sea and it obeys. The mountains quake before him. The earth trembles in his presence. This is our God. And keep that thought of power in your mind because verses 7 and 8 show us how this awesome power of God is used. Look at verse 7. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. We we have a bridge in between uh, the first and second parts of this chapter here. And when Nahum describes all this awesome power, he then comes to verse 7. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. And Assyria knew this to be true when they saw how God dealt with Judah. When Paula read that passage earlier in in 2 Kings 19, we read of how King Sennacherib was planning to attack and destroy Jerusalem. He ridiculed Hezekiah for believing that God would save them. He ridiculed God by saying that the gods of all the other cities didn't save them. So why would our God be any different? And then in chapter 19, Hezekiah prays. The prophet Isaiah speaks. And look what happens. That night, an angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. 
When the people got up the next morning, they were all dead bodies. You see, they trusted God, the people of of Judah, trusted God. They believed what Isaiah said. Hezekiah believed in the word of God. He was their refuge in the day of trouble. He cared for them when they trusted him. And look what God did. He performed a miracle. This massive empire, the superpower of the world, woke up and their army was just dead on the floor because our God is more powerful than any empire. And it's a wonderful thing that this consoler from the Lord reminds us in the midst of this passage of wrath and terrifying power that our God is also good. His power is never misused but is always used for what is right according to his purposes. And for the believer, for you and I who have an all-powerful God, it is wonderful to know these things. All that power above described in his character and in his creation is used to be our refuge in a time of trouble. Is used to care for us when we trust in him. And if you are in God's hands tonight, you are in the safest place in the whole universe. That illness that you face, well, the Lord is good. He is a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. That uncertainty in your job situation, the Lord is good. He is a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. That person you can't face dealing with, the Lord is good. He's a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. Whatever your day of trouble, whatever it is, the Lord is good. He is a refuge. He cares for you. But what about the unbeliever? What is this power used for them? Well, look at verse 8. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into darkness. For those who oppose him, he uses all the power mentioned above in their destruction. An overrunning flood will be poured upon Nineveh and darkness will pursue all of God's enemies. Into the realm of darkness is saying how they will disappear from the earth. The language is familiar to them because when they defeated an enemy, they would write an inscription on the story of their battle. And the inscription would say in the end, and no one has seen any trace of him since. And God would destroy them, so there would not even be a trace of them. This is a terrifying thought, isn't it? But I'm glad it's a terrifying thought, because if we didn't, weren't terrified by this, we may never come to Christ. Nahum wanted people to realize the penalty of their sin. But all this terror was also placed on our wonderful and perfect Savior, wasn't it? God used his awesome power to display both his love and his wrath on Jesus. And in the Gospels, we even see how creation was used for this. I'll read you uh, just a couple of verses. First of all, from Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27 and verses 51 to 53. When Jesus was on the cross, this is what happened. When he died at that moment... The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, the tombs uh, broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. 
The earth shook, the rocks split, tombs came open when God's wrath was poured out on Jesus. And in Luke chapter 23, and verses 44 to 45, we read what happened uh, to, in, in, in terms of darkness. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. It was about midday. Darkness came over the earth, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. God's wrath, this power, was poured on Jesus. And Peter Lewis, uh, who wrote a really great book called The Glory of Christ, describes it as this, his love provided what his holiness required. His love provided what his holiness required. God is a God of awesome power, and it's used for his people, but it's also used for his wrath, and that wrath was placed on our saviour for us, wasn't it? Well, finally, as we come to verses 9 to 15, we see that God's justice is shown. God is a God of power, but he's also a God of justice. In verse 9, we read, Whatever they plot against the Lord, he will bring to an end. Trouble will not come a second time. What are these plots or conspiracies? Well, as we read earlier, the the king of Assyria, uh, Sennacherib, tried but failed to overcome Jerusalem. And despite this failure, the Ninevites continued to plot ways to overcome the city. And Israel was destroyed by Assyria, but the chance to destroy God's people and trouble them would not come, Nahum says, a second time. Trouble will not come a second time. We'll look at verse 10. Verse 10 tells us about the Ninevites when they were destroyed. They will be entangled like thorns and drunk from their wine. They will be consumed like dry stubble. Well, history tells us that when Nineveh was destroyed, the soldiers were drunk. And the Assyrian king was known to distribute liberal supplies of wine to his soldiers. And the Babylonians knew this. And they attacked at night when the soldiers would be drunk. They were tangled like thorns. It's a simile describing the way they were twisted in their debauchery. That was to be their downfall. And archaeological excavations have shown that Nineveh was indeed destroyed by fire. Stubble here is referring to refuse, refuse that is incinerated. And it was destroyed by fire. The rest of the passage, if you're not reading the NIV, can be a bit confusing. Because it doesn't say whether it's referring to Nineveh or Judah. Because in the Hebrew, the masculine and feminine are used to describe the two. But in the NIV, it tells you who it's referring to, and I'll make sure I mention it in case you're reading something else. Uh, But verse 11 refers to Nineveh. It says, From you, O Nineveh, has one come forth who plots evil against the Lord and counsels wickedness. Well, the one that comes out of you is the king of the Assyrian Empire, the one who plots against Judah. But the word evil here is a different kind of evil than what we normally think of evil in the Hebrew. It doesn't mean evil in the same way that's normally used. It means a wickedness that is worthless or without profit. A wickedness that's pointless. And the reason it's used here is because God is saying that your evil against against me and my people is pointless. It's futile plotting against God. This, This counsel of wickedness is useless against me. And in the midst of this devastation... 
in the midst of, of all that Judah's going through, it's wonderful to know that God is going to be victorious in the end. It's, it's futile. These, these people that are against God, it's worthless, it's pointless. And in verses 12 to 13, this consolation to God's people continues as the Lord looks at Judah. This is what the Lord says, although they have allies and are numerous, they will be cut off and pass away. Although I've afflicted you, O Judah, I will afflict you no more. Now I will break their yoke from your neck and tear their shackles away. Although Assyria had many allies, uh, some versions use at full strength, because for centuries no uh, enemy had penetrated her walls. Although they were numerous, they will nevertheless be destroyed, because nothing is impossible for our God. These allies were not necessarily uh, real allies. Later on in the book we read how they were nowhere to be seen when the Babylonians came to destroy But they will be cut off. They will afflict Judah no more. And Judah was no ally. As uh, as we read at the end of verse 12, God had used Nineveh or Assyria to afflict Judah. The yoke was to be broken. The shackles taken away. And a yoke is a a wooden beam used by two cattle uh, to put them together to double the strength of what's being pulled And Assyria used Judah, if you like, as their yoke, pulling hard for their benefit. But God was going to break it off and take the shackles away. And it's amazing to notice how it was God who afflicted the people. Although Christ has been uh, punished for our, uh, our, our sin, we're still disciplined as his children. And God allows us to suffer the consequences of our foolish and sinful actions. He doesn't punish us for them, but we still have to suffer the consequences of our sin. And he, in his sovereign way, controls the most powerful empires and moves them as he chooses. There's a proverb that's come to my mind, and I've forgotten the reference, but it says that the head of the king is in God's hands, doesn't it? And he moves it however he pleases. And at the same time, we see here another Bible, wonderful Bible picture of what Jesus does for us. You see, sin keeps us in shackles. Sin has many allies and is strong. Yet Christ, through his death and resurrection, breaks the yoke and shackles of sin and frees us from the penalty. Well, as we come towards the end, we see in verse 14, turning back to Nineveh, the Lord has given a command concerning you, Nineveh, You will have no descendants to bear your name. I will destroy the carved images and cast idols that are in the temple of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are vile. Well, the whole of this verse was fulfilled. Until fairly recently, uh, people thought Nineveh was a myth. It was only in the 1800s that they found it was a real place. No descendants bear the name of Nineveh or can say that they came from there. And when Nineveh was found... They found the statue of the goddess Ishtar headless in the debris of her ruins. God literally cut off the images and made a grave for them and for those that worship them. Although justice has been done through Jesus Christ and our eternity is secure, we still are in a battle with sin day by day. And we can only win the battle because the Holy Spirit lives in us. In Colossians chapter 3, we read of things that we need to put to death, don't we? As if we're in a battle too. 
And in the same way that God defeated Nineveh, a huge and powerful enemy, so he will gain the victory over sin in our lives as he changes us into the image of Jesus. Perhaps some of you today need to have your lives confronted with God's hatred of sin. We are saved by grace, but we still have sin that we need to get rid of in our lives, don't we? Although not bound by the shackles of sin in the sense that we're forgiven completely, some Christians still have specific sins that they are bound by. Sexual addictions, bad language, anger, gossip, for example. God can attack and destroy these things, but it's not easy. We need to be willing to allow him to work in our lives. And we need the help of other believers, don't we? Perhaps some of you have idols who need to have their heads cut off. Idols of money, of career, of family, or anything else that you place as more important than God. The old man needs to be put to death like Nineveh was. And God has all the power that enables us to do this. Through the power of prayer, through the help of his people, through the strength that we have through the Spirit. And as we conclude this chapter, we see more consolation. Look at verse 15. There is good news coming from the mountain. There is one who brings peace. It says, look, there on the mountains, the feet of one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. Celebrate your festivals, O Judah, and fulfill your vows. No more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed. Well, this is partly fulfilled by Assyria's destruction but they were only replaced by another, uh, another captor in Babylon, weren't they? The true good news is the gospel of peace through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which makes an end of our ultimate enemy, sin. And the world around us seems so much bigger and stronger than we are as Christians. We see anti-Christian legislation through Parliament. In many parts of the world, Christians suffer persecution in ways we can't imagine. This is just how Judah felt. Assyria was so much bigger and stronger than they. It seemed like they would be forever under the yoke. But like Judah, we're told in the midst of oppression, celebrate your festivals, fulfill your vows. For us, keep meeting together as a church. Keep celebrating our risen saviour. Keep the commandments God has given because this wicked world will be destroyed. And it's worth keeping on going with our all-powerful God by our side, helping us through. Well, our final song uh, continues the theme from verse 15. Like God's people in Nahum's time under suffering, we're told to celebrate their festivals and keep their vows. We're told in this song, in our day, to come and rejoice as the church of Christ. That peace on the mountain has come to us in the person of Jesus, our risen King, who we come to bring our praise to. Let's stand together as we sing, come people of the risen King who delight to bring him praise.